All right, we are continuing together our study in our church's doctrinal statement, which is the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And so, if you'll turn in your Confession of Faith to the very last chapter on page 41, we're dealing with chapter 32. And chapter 32 deals with the subject of the last judgment. And uh, we know there's going to be a final judgment, not only from the revelation of Scripture, which is just abundant, but also simply from the fact that as we look at the world around us, we realize there's much injustice here, that injustice isn't resolved here, and so there must be a place any time where all injustices are made right, and uh, all uh, proper behavior is rewarded, and that occurs on the Day of Judgment. Now, paragraph 1 deals with the certainty of the Day of Judgment, and we want to read the paragraph together, briefly summarize what we studied in it, and then consider the material that's before us today. So, paragraph 1 deals with the Last Judgment, and in particular, the certainty of the Day of Judgment. It says in paragraph 1, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. And so, uh, as we look at this paragraph, we notice that it asserts several things. And the first thing it asserts is the one sitting in judgment is none other than Jesus Christ. Twice it says that God will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, and all the angels and all the people on earth will appear before the tribunal of Christ. So we read in John 5.22, the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. So clearly, Jesus is the one who is doing the judging. In Acts 17.31, it says, he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men, in that he has raised him from the dead. So the one who has been raised from the dead is the one who's going to do the judging, and that man, of course, is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we talked about the persons being judged, and we said that the apostate angels are going to be judged. It says in Jude 1.6, the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he has reserved an everlasting change under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. So all the fallen angels are going to be judged. Furthermore, all persons who lived on the earth are going to be judged. Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his work. So no person is going to escape uh, the day of judgment. And then we talked about the process of this judgment, and that is, is that all people will give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds. It says in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14, God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So this judgment is not only comprehensive of all persons, 
It's also comprehensive of all moral acts by those persons, whether thoughts or words or deeds. And then finally, uh, upon this judgment, everyone will receive their just due. And so we spent uh, last time looking at the passage in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. And I would like to just reread that passage to you, summarize what we said at the end of the lesson last time, and then launch into the new material. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn in them and follow along as I read Matthew 25, verse 31 through verse 46. Matthew 25, 31. And uh, you'll notice in verse 31 it says, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee unhungered? and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer, and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of these least of my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, Prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was unhungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not, To one of the least of these you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And so last time we closed with a consideration of this passage. And we talked about the fact that God's judgment is according to works. Whenever we read about God's judgment anywhere in the Bible... God always judges people based on the choices they made and the moral actions they engaged in while they were here upon the earth. And we noticed as we looked at this passage that uh, when, when Jesus speaks to the righteous, He doesn't mention any of their sins that they committed in their lifetimes to them. And we said the reason why that was the case 
is because they have no sins on their account. Because all of those sins were placed to the account of Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, they were fully expiated, entirely forgiven, and fully cleansed so that they do not cling to them anymore. And as it says in Jude 1 and verse 23, that he is able to present them faultless before his throne with eternal joy. And so um, the righteous, when they appear, Jesus looks at their righteous works, which they did, and he reasons from their behavior to their attitude towards him and their faith in him. And he says, your behavior indicated that you loved me, that you served me, that you believed in me. And what he uses as a proxy for how we viewed him and treated him is how we treated his people. Because Jesus and his people are of a piece. He is the head and his people are his body. And the way someone treats your body is the way they're treating your head. Your body's a whole, right? And if I go and I uh, hit you in the stomach, uh, your head takes notice. On the other hand, if I feed your stomach, your head also takes notice. And so the way I treat any part of your body is the way I treat the totality of your body. And so what Jesus says is that if you showed love and compassion and mercy and ministry to any Christian, you showed it to me. And so the way you treated the least of these, my brethren, is the way you treated me. So how do you know if someone is saved or not? Well, by the way, they treat the people of God and what their attitude is towards them. And you see, of course, that the people of God love each other and minister to each other and serve each other because they see in each other their Savior, Jesus Christ, who indwells every believer. And what we love about each other is we love Christ in each other and what Christ has done in us. And so the way someone treats Christians indicates the way they treat Jesus Christ. Their attitude towards Christians is their attitude towards Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus does is he looks at the behavior of these people and he says on the basis of their behavior, they clearly had saving faith in me. I find no fault in them because all of their sins were cleansed by my atonement. And so there is nothing to bring to bear upon them by way of condemnation or by way of reproof because all of the reproaches that should have fallen on us fell on him. He fully bore them and completely expiated and cleansed them. Now, when he turns to the unrighteous, what's interesting is that not only does he mention no sins of the righteous, he mentions no righteousnesses of the sinners. And we saw last time that's because the wicked have no righteousness. All that they do. And everything that they do is sin. Caleb brought up the passage that the plowing 
of the wicked is sin. When a wicked man grabs his plow and he goes out and he tills his field to feed his family, he's sinning. Why is he sinning? The answer is, is because all of his acts proceed out of a corrupt nature and therefore are tainted and polluted with corrupt motives. The Bible says we're supposed to do all that we do for the glory of God, and he's not doing it for the glory of God. He's doing it for his own selfish and self-interested motives. So when the Bible says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God, and the glory of God is the furthest thing away from the mind of the unsaved man, even when he's doing apparently good deeds. Uh, even those good deeds are sinful because they're not done for a right motive and they're not done in a self-conscious attitude of service to God. And so when it comes to the wicked, uh, they have no righteousnesses. When it comes to the righteous, they have no wickednesses. So this is where we concluded last time. Now, I want to pick up from there, and I want to expand on the thought that the believer, the believer does not look forward to the day of judgment with fear and dread. The believer looks forward to the day of judgment with hope and joy and excitement and anticipation. And the reason why he does so is because he is going to be presented faultless before the throne of God. And he has nothing but positive things to look forward to. Now what I want to do is look at a number of passages, and we're going to go through these quickly, and uh, just pick up the major ideas that are contained in them. And as we do so, we'll see the hope and the delight and the anticipation and the joy that the Christian has as he contemplates his appearance before Christ on the day of judgment. Now, we're already in Matthew 25, so let's just look at that first. And we won't be looking at these in any particular order, but um, uh, notice in verse 21, um, Matthew 25 and verse 21, um, Jesus here is talking about the parable of the talents and how he entrusted talents to each person and then he came back and received an accounting of what they did with what he entrusted them with. And uh, notice verse 20, it says, So he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest to me five talents. Behold, I have gained besides them five talents more. And verse 21 says, <clears throat> His Lord said unto him, and here's what we anticipate on the day of judgment. Okay, this is what we anticipate hearing on the day of judgment. Verse 21, His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. So what do we have to look forward to on the day of judgment? Coming before Christ, giving an account of our stewardship, and of course, every Christian takes those gifts and graces and abilities and opportunities that God has given to him or to her, and they use them to serve Christ. And some have fewer gifts, and they might produce fewer things, and others have more gifts and produce more things. Um, but nevertheless, those who are faithful with what they have, and they are because they want to serve Jesus, a Christian who 
doesn't serve as an oxymoron. Uh, there is no such thing as a believer who does not use his abilities for Christ. So what we have to look forward to is this, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we see this further in this same chapter in verse 34, which we just read. It says, Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So what do we anticipate as we come to the day of judgment? We anticipate Jesus saying, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. We anticipate him saying um, in verse uh, 34, um, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So we anticipate the day of judgment as being a day of blessing, as being a day of reward, and as being a day of opportunity to enter into the kingdom of God. Who wouldn't want to show up on the day of judgment with that kind of a future in front of them. And that's the kind of future that believers in Jesus Christ have to look forward to. Now turn back to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 5. We're in Matthew, so we'll just go over to John, chapter 5, verse 24. John five twenty-four. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life, now notice, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. So what do we have to look forward to on the day of judgment? Answer, no condemnation, but rather the entrance into everlasting life. That's what we have to look forward to when we show up there. Now turn, please, to Romans chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans chapter 2. Speaking of the final judgment in verse 6. In verse 5, at the last phrase of verse 5, he talks about the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And then Romans 2 and verse 6. Who will render to every man according to his deeds? Notice verse 7. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, they will receive eternal life. Notice verse 10. It says, But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so Christians do good. They work good in their lives. As we saw in Matthew chapter 25, some of those good things are the way in which they treated the people of God. They were hungry and they were fed. They were thirsty and they were given to drink. They were in prison. They were visited, etc. And so what do they have to look forward to? Glory, honor, and peace. What do they have to look forward to? Uh, eternal life. And so this is what Christians are going to experience on the day of judgment. And then turn to 1 Corinthians 4. Right after Romans is 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. 
Paul says regarding the evaluation of people by people. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, he says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. Now, obviously, he's talking to Christians, he's talking about Christians, and he's saying God knows the things that nobody else knows. He knows the things that went on in your heart, the goodwill that you had, the proper motives you had, the times you obeyed God when nobody was watching. Nobody knew, but God knew. And God understood, and God saw, and God heard the counsels of, of your heart, and he will reward you for that. And so uh, we have nothing to be afraid of when we go to the day of judgment, because as I said, all of our sins have been imputed to Christ, so the only thing we show up there with is the good works that we did in the name of Christ, and those will be rewarded by Christ. And then 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then 1 Thessalonians, and 2 Thessalonians is where we want to be. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we just proceeding to the right in our Bibles. Now, the Thessalonians were very persecuted people, okay? Uh, they were persecuted badly by the Jews as well as by the Romans. And he says here in 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning at verse 4, he says, So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So the Thessalonians endured a lot of persecutions and tribulations from other people. And what did they do? They endured. They maintained faith in Christ. They didn't say, well, if this is how I get treated for being a Christian, I'll give up this Christianity business. No, they stayed faithful to Christ and they endured the persecution. Verse 5, their endurance was a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. And here's the judgment. You might be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for the which also you suffer. So their faithfulness to Christ under suffering is a manifestation that they have true faith in Christ and thus are worthy to enter into the kingdom of God. Okay? Now, notice what happens to their persecutors. Verse 6. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to those who trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. 
So one of the things that we have to look forward to on the day of judgment is complete deliverance from our persecutors, which in and of itself will be wonderful, but also that God is going to bring judgment on our persecutors. Christians in this life are oftentimes horribly persecuted, and their persecutors seem to suffer no uh, negative effects from doing so in this life. Well, guess what? Their judgment's coming. And we will see ourselves vindicated and our enemies punished on the day of judgment. And that will bring us a great deal of rejoicing in the justice of God in not only delivering us from persecution, which we don't deserve, but also bringing vengeance upon our persecutors and giving them their just due for the persecution that they bring against his people. Uh, every week in prayer meeting, we read uh, prayer requests from the voice of the martyrs about our persecuted brethren around the world. And we see our brethren just getting slaughtered right and left in countries like India and Somalia and Eritrea and Nigeria and in many other countries, uh, China, that are under either atheistic rule, uh, Buddhist rule, or uh, Muslim rule. And uh, we cry out to God, God, <laughs> deliver your people. He will passage promises it. That's what we have to look forward to on the day of judgment. All right, the next passage you want to look at is 2 Timothy 4. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Here's Paul. He's lived a life of self-denial, of self-sacrifice, of service to Jesus, love to his people, all of his life. What did he get in return? Persecution, hatred, rejection, reviling. <laughs> Notice what he says, verse 7, 2 Timothy 4, 7. Well, verse 6, we'll start at verse 6. He says, for I am now ready to be offered in the time of my departure at hand. is at hand. He's an old man, he's about to die, okay? His departure is not his departure from the airport, it's his departure from this life. Okay, he says, verse seven, I have fought a good fight. Notice how he characterized the totality of his life as a Christian. It was a fight. And the Christian life is. We're in a war against the world and the flesh and the devil. And we won't have any peace until the end. In the meantime, mark it down. Life is a fight. It's a fight against evil. And we're in a battle. He says, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. That is, he persevered to the end. He didn't give up. He didn't say, oh, well, Christianity, that was fine for a while, but I'm through with it. No, he, he kept on being faithful to Christ, clear to the end. Verse 8, what did he have to look forward to? Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. And so those who look forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ, look forward to receiving not a frown, not a Jesus saying, you know, you didn't do very well back then on August 3rd of 1984. What, what were you thinking then when you... None of that. Why? Those sins were placed on Christ. They're cleansed. They're gone. What he will be saying to us is, you know, you fought a good fight. You kept the faith. You finished your course. 
here's your crown of righteousness. And it's not going to be just for Paul, but for all of us who live for Christ and long for his appearing and look forward to it. All right, 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3 is talking about the second coming of Christ and the, um, the uh, uh, final judgment on the world and the, um, the cleansing of the world by fire. And it says in verse 12 that we are looking for and hastening unto the coming day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Now here it is, verse 13 of chapter 3. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now I don't know about you, but I'm pretty tired of this heaven and this earth because righteousness doesn't dwell here. This world is full of unrighteousness, it's full of sin, it's fallen, it's under the curse. We are a minority people who dwell in the midst of a majority of people who are wicked and and hateful of God and hateful towards God's people. And, you know, we're really looking forward to the day when we live in a perfect kingdom with a perfect king, under perfect laws, with perfect people who all act perfectly just in the way in which they're supposed to towards each other. Wouldn't that be great? No, nobody sins against anybody. And we all just get along with perfect love and without any um, conflict whatsoever. A new heavens and a new earth where there's no curse and in which dwells righteousness. And so these are some, <laughs> just a few of the passages that talk about what Christians have to look forward to on the day of judgment. For us, it's an exciting day. It's a wonderful day. It is a day in which we will receive our rewards. We will enter into heaven. We will enjoy all of the blessings that Christ has purchased for us. Uh, there will be no condemnation. There will be vengeance on our enemies. And uh, every man will be rewarded by Christ. And... Uh, we can look forward to that day with confidence because Jesus Christ uh, presents us holy and unblameable and unreprovable before God uh, in His sight. It says in Jude one twenty four that He presents us faultless before His throne with eternal joy. It says in Psalm 103 and verse 12 that as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our sins from us. And that's an infinite distance. We're never going to see them again. It says in Micah 7.19 that he's taken all of our sins and cast them into the depths of the sea. They're buried. They're gone forever. It says in Isaiah 43 and verse 25 that our sins have been blotted out as a thick cloud. And God says, I will remember them no more. And so the wonderful thing about Christ's redemption is that it fully cleanses us and expiates us from all sins so that when we appear on the day of judgment, God isn't going to drag all of our sins out of the closet and lay them all out in front of us and shame us for each one of them because all of that shame and all of that condemnation for all of those sins fell on Jesus Christ and He bore them. And they were imputed to him. And he took the handwriting of offenses that was against us. 
And he took it away, having nailed it to his cross. And we will see them no more. So for us, the day of judgment is a day of gladness and joy and excitement and of entering into all that Jesus has purchased for us. So we have nothing to fear as we look forward to that day, but only uh, things of joy and happiness and delight. All right, are there any questions? All right, well, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the wonder of redemption in Christ. Thank you, Father, that he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Thank you, Father, that we have a redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Father, truly, uh, that is grace that is greater than all our sins. For the scripture says that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And so thank you, Father, for forgiveness. Thank you for cleansing. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity we now have uh, of being made free from sin. We now can become servants to righteousness and have fruit unto holiness. Father, these are the things that delight our heart. These are the things we desire. These are the things we look forward to. Father, be pleased to help us Spread the good news to others of redemption, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of deliverance from all of our sins. And not only that, but of being adopted as children of God, being blessed by our Father and owned by Him as His children. Father, hasten that day. Help each of us to be prepared for it through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.